This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. If you'd like to support the work we do and access members-only bonus content and ad-free versions of the show, then consider becoming a member at the Contribute tab at bestofleft.com. Now, welcome to a brand new year of the award-winning Best of Left podcast. I know we are all thankful to be done with 2016. I'm right there with you, but keeping in mind that 2017 is essentially promising to be worse... Personally, I'm not quite ready for it, uh, which is why I'm so glad that months ago I decided that the first episode of 2017 would be a little something different. So 2016 was a big year for the show. I hit episode number 1000 and hit the 10-year anniversary of the show within just a couple of months of each other. And so for episode 1000, I had the idea, like, okay, how do we mark this occasion? And I thought, well, if we just passed the 10-year mark, why don't I do a review show of 2006, looking back 10 years? And at least one listener wrote in saying, really interesting show, good idea, maybe this should be an annual thing. And I thought, perfect. The first show of each year going forward will be a look back at 10 years previous. So today's episode is another one of those special episodes. We are looking back today at 2007. So I spent a good chunk of my, uh, the last bit of my holiday here, scouring through my own archives, listening to my own shows from 2007. It was a bizarre year, and we're going to hear clips from shows that no longer exist and people who are no longer living, but also from shows that are still going strong. So today we're going to hear from Countdown with Keith Olbermann, The Young Turks, Ring of Fire Radio, The Daily Show, The Al Franken Show, Democracy Now!, The Associated Press, Senator Ted Kennedy, The Colbert Report, some audio from my old stomping grounds, the Chesapeake Climate Action Network, and BBC's World News Tonight. We're starting out uh, with the countdown, discussing one of the biggest stories to start off the year. First, the story of the woman of the hour, California Congresswoman Nancy Pelosi, making this day in Washington historic on multiple fronts by collecting enough votes to become the first woman speaker of the House of Representatives, second in the line of succession to the presidency, business unusual at her swearing in Madam Speaker, inviting not just her six grandchildren, but every child in the chamber to join her on the podium, and accepting the gavel, Mrs. Pelosi, recognizing the anti-war mandate that brought her to power and the women's movement that brought her to politics. It is a moment for which we have waited over 200 years. Never losing faith, we waited through the many years of struggle to achieve our rights. But women weren't just waiting, women were working. Never losing faith, we worked to redeem the promise of America that all men and women are created equal. The American people rejected an open-ended obligation to a war without end. Shortly, President Bush will address the nation on the subject of Iraq. It is the responsibility of the President to articulate a new plan for Iraq that makes it clear to the Iraqis that they must defend their own streets 
and their own security. A plan that makes, promotes stability in the region and a plan that allows us to responsibly redeploy our troops. Nancy Pelosi taking her position as the Speaker of the House wasn't the only notable change in the Congress, though. Coming up, we have the Young Turks and Ring of Fire commenting on a couple of other friends of the show who made waves in the Congress that year. He was broken pretty bad, so we gave him what we had. We cleared a space for him to sleep in, and we let the silence, that's our trademark, make its presence felt. Come on. First of all, I would like to say, do you feel it, Jill? Do I feel what? Well, it's very windy. here. It's very windy and cold here in Los yeah. Angeles, Jack. Yeah. And I sense it's because America's foundation is off its kilter, as Dennis Prager predicted. Exactly. Because Keith Ellison used the Quran uh, to, for the photo op when he was sworn in in Congress. He said essentially it would, you know, send a terrible signal and embolden terrorists and essentially weaken America's foundation. And you know, I, you know what I, this I first, well, just let me say, at first I didn't think he was right. Oh. But I do now. The wind I, is actually Satan. Yeah. Satan blowing I, through the United States. I feel like America is off kilter because of that. Yeah, I feel it here too. Uh, yeah. Is New York falling I'm shaking to well? my core. Jenk <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, began the program by refer the segment. He was on for three segments, and you began by referring to Dennis Prager as a clown. Yeah, I uh, t- did all I could to resist my temptation to call him an ass clown. I think that was why. <laughs> And I just went with clown instead. Can you remind so, me? Dennis Prager just did something that that we. Uh, well, this is uh, the Keith Ellison thing. Oh right. Uh, and of course, Keith Ellison, a historic day in America. Keith Ellison, uh, the first uh, Muslim uh, member of the United States Congress, and Nancy Pelosi, the first, uh, well, the second Muslim member of Congress. Nancy, Pel- I didn't know Nancy Pelosi was a Muslim. <laughs> that is, uh, it's fascinating. Uh, no, uh, Nancy Pelosi, the first uh, woman uh, speaker of the United States uh, House of Representatives. Uh, I don't, Armageddon is on its way. Uh, I don't think we made a big enough deal about that yesterday, and I kind of wanted to address that. And, you know, I guess partly because I've grown up in, in a context where I thought, well, women being in charge or, you know, diversity, all these things are incredibly normal to me. Uh, but unfortunately, they have not been incredibly normal to the country for a long, long time. And I, I almost like when people said Nancy Pelosi was going to be the first female Speaker of the House, in my mind, it almost wasn't even true. I was like, well, that can't be true. How could that be true? I'm sure there must have been other female speakers before. But, you know, as it began to sink in yesterday, I realized, you know, it is a really historic moment for America, though in my mind, perhaps it shouldn't be. Perhaps we should have gotten to this moment a long, long time ago. I mean, remember, Pakistan had a female president decades ago Mm -hmm. and so did turkey and so did many other muslim countries and so it's kind of it's almost a little embarrassing that we're celebrating the first female speaker of the house at this point but we are so that's that is a great step democrat or republican
Congressman Sanders, first of all, let me congratulate you publicly. What a great thing for America to have you moving into the Senate. I just can't, I, I can't think of anything better for this country right now. Well, thank you very much, Mike. Yeah. I appreciate that. I really appreciate the help we got, not only from people, obviously, all over the state of Vermont, who gave me a, a huge victory here, but the support we received from virtually every state in the country. Well, I know. It, was, it should have been overwhelming. As I watched your campaign from afar, the, the thing that I think I was most moved by, that they would always say Bernie Sanders connects with what people want to hear. It worked in Vermont. They love you in Vermont. 65% of I mean, you've been, you know, you've been their guy for so long. Why is it that your message of compassion and the message of taking care of the least of our society, why is it that politicians, Republicans and Democrats are so damned afraid to talk like that? Jesus, Mark, I, I, the answer is, I don't know. I mean, I think, frankly, it's good politics. I mean, if I didn't believe it, I'd probably do it. Because it makes sense. Well, common sense, teach me everything I need to know. What's worth fighting for, what I need to just let go. So an interesting couple of guys, Bernie Sanders and Keith Ellison. Uh, Sanders moved from the House to the Senate 10 years ago. I've been a fan of his since, you know, before that. And I've always thought that he had a bright future in politics. We'll have to wait and see if he ever, you know, makes any additional moves. And Keith Ellison, the first Muslim elected to Congress, that was 10 years ago. And now he's running for the chair of the Democratic National Committee. Uh, we've done clips on that in the recent past. And, uh, you know, he's certainly my choice of the uh, the options available. Another note on Ellison, though, he's actually a friend of the show, not sarcastically, as people usually are in that case. I saw him at Netroots Nation this past summer. He was just walking down the sidewalk. And so I saw him and I stopped him because... I'm not sure many people know this, but he actually hosts his own podcast. It's a pretty good show called We the Podcast. I'm a fan. So I wanted to stop him and say, hey, Congressman, just real quick, just wanted to say I'm a fan of your podcast. And the look on his face went from neutral to completely shocked to pretty much elated. I think just in his facial expressions, I could tell that I might be one of, if not the first person to ever engage a conversation with him and start with, I'm a fan of your podcast. And, and so he was you know, grateful and th you know thankful uh, that I liked the show and, and stopped him to talk about it. And then he looked down. I, I was wearing my Best of the Less sweatshirt at the time. He looked down and he said, well, wait a second. I'm a fan of that show. Is that your show? And I said, yeah. He said, wait, are you the guy who says, now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it? I said, yeah, that's me. So it turns out the admiration goes both ways, and and uh, he's a big fan of the show. So for those of you, you know, engaging in the show, writing in, calling in, leaving voicemails, don't just think that you are uh, having a, a closed conversation here just amongst friends. There are powerful people listening. It's always good to know that they are engaged in the uh, progressive conversation. Now, this next clip I got to tell you about uh, – this event we're going to be talking about actually happened in late 2006. It didn't make it into the show until 2007, but it's worth mentioning anyways. Newt Gingrich gave a speech at an award dinner billed as a tribute to crusaders for the First Amendment. And if you know anything about Newt Gingrich or Republicans in general, you will probably not be surprised to find that the speech he gave at an award dinner as a tribute to crusaders for the First Amendment 
was very much about the need to restrict free speech in order to fight terrorism. And my favorite little comment about this, it's not in the show, but I heard it during my research. A guy came on TV and he said, well, I would just hate to hear what he would say at a Mother's Day event. So uh, this next clip is one of Keith Olbermann's famous commentaries, just a little bit of it in response to Gingrich's speech. Common sense make me want to be a Finally, tonight, as promised, a special comment about free speech, failed speakers, and the delusions of grandeur. This is a serious long-term war, the man at the podium cried, and it will inevitably lead us to want to know what is said in every suspect place in the country. Some in the audience must have thought they were hearing an arsonist give the keynote address at a convention of firefighters. This was the annual Loeb First Amendment dinner in Manchester, New Hampshire, a public cherishing of freedom of speech in the state with the two-fisted motto, live free or die. And the arsonist at the microphone, the former Speaker of the House, Newt Gingrich, was insisting that we must attach an on-off button to free speech. He offered the time-tested excuse, trotted out by our demagogues since even before the Republic was founded, widespread death of Americans in America, possibly at the hands of Americans but updated now to include terrorists using the Internet for recruitment and result, quote, losing a city. The colonial English defended their repression with words like those, and so did the slave states, and so did the policemen who shot strikers, and so did Lindbergh's America First crowd, and so did those who interned Japanese Americans, and so did those behind the Red Scare, and so did Nixon's plumbers. The genuine proportion of the threat is always irrelevant. The fear the threat is exploited to create becomes the only reality. We will adopt rules of engagement that use every technology we can find, Mr. Gingrich continued, about terrorists, formerly communists, formerly hippies, formerly fifth columnists, formerly anarchists, formerly redcoats, to break up their capacity to use the Internet, to break up their capacity to use free speech. Mr. Gingrich, the British broke up our capacity to use free speech in the 1770s. The pro-slavery leaders broke up our capacity to use free speech in the 1850s. The FBI and the CIA broke up our capacity to use free speech in the 1960s. It is within those groups where you would have found your kindred spirits, Mr. Gingrich, those who had no faith in freedom, no faith in this country, and ultimately no faith even in the strength of their own ideas to stand up on their own legs without having the playing field tilted entirely to their benefit. Of course, in 2007, the Iraq war was a big topic of conversation, and I'm realizing I, I may not actually do that topic justice in today's episode, but the year certainly started off with a lot of talk about Bush's push for the surge. You may have heard of it. Last week saw two major new products introduced. First up, Apple's Steve Jobs. An iPod. A phone. <laughs> and an internet communicator. And we are calling it iPhone. Uh, I'll take 8,000. <laughs> God, he's good. Obviously, people excited about the combination I thing. And now the other product, 
Iraq. I've committed more than 20,000 additional American troops to Iraq. Thank you and good night. You know, uh, you'd think planning a major speech like that, someone would have checked the White House for crickets. But <laughs> clearly, the president's product launch receiving a new cokish welcome. So the president's advisors launched a PR offensive to assure the public that just because our new way forward meant returning troop levels to where they were in December of 2005, this plan had a twist. There are a whole series of things that we are doing different. A new strategy that will yield different results. They will succeed rather than fail. <laughs> succeed rather than fail. Sounds counterintuitive. Hmm. But here's why this might work. The old plan asked an awful lot from the Iraqis. Our policy is stand up, stand down. As the Iraqis stand up, we'll stand down. See, if they didn't stand up, <laughs> we're waiting. But this new plan changes that and addresses the so-called up-down loophole. It is time for the Iraqis to step up. That starts most importantly with the Iraqi leadership in Baghdad stepping up. They, in fact, need to step up. Now, you may say the White House has merely replaced the word stand with step. Touche. <laughs> you may also point out that, as was reported recently, the Iraqis can't run a single battalion on their own. <laughs> well, the White House is ready for your negativity. If you don't like our idea, you got a better one. We want to hear it. All right. If the uh, Democrats don't like what we're proposing, it seems to me they have a, an obligation to, to put forward their proposal. If somebody's got a better idea about how to do this, we want to hear it. Ha! Now you may counter, I thought that's what the Iraq study group was for. <laughs> or the Levin-Reed amendment calling for phased withdrawal. Man, you're a real downer. <laughs> but okay, I'll indulge you. You have a plan. Well, have you thought about looking at that plan in the most emotionally loaded way possible? Ask a simple question. If the U.S. withdraws, does it make Osama bin Laden happy or sad? And if Bin Laden was happy, would he know it? And if Bin Laden knew it, would he clap his hands? Would his face surely show it? These are the questions we would ask Bin Laden if we had caught him. But what did you do? What did you say? Or did you walk or did you run away? Where are you now? Where have you been? Did you go alone? Rather than have the show get bogged down in the war like the country did, that's the only clip I'm going to play. The short version is everybody suggested that we not do a surge. Bush pretty much unilaterally decided we should do a surge. Everyone more or less hated that. Uh, we did it. Uh, Petraeus later came out when things were going badly saying, uh, you know, we, let's uh, just give it a little bit more time. Uh, MoveOn.org famously came out with their 
Petraeus betray us ad, which was a hoopla, and liberals across the board pretty much said that Bush was trying to run out the clock on his own administration so that he could pass the war to whoever would come next so that the disaster that would inevitably follow would be on someone else's watch. And then that's what happened. Moving on to an ostensibly related topic of how Muslims are treated in this country, it uh, turns out the Young Turks had a really interesting story on that. Jerry Klein gets on a WMAL 6.30 a.m. in Washington, D.C. and says, um, you know what? These Muslims, they're dangerous. And so what we need to do is we need to be able to identify them. Hmm. And uh, he says, what we need to do is put a crescent-shaped tattoo or maybe a distinctive armband on Muslims. Oh, I'm already thinking that he's uh, uh, messing with it. As I said earlier. Yeah. All right. So he may he not be, him. he may not be concerned. All right. right. Uh, but I think he is. I think, but I think he just sensed like we've, we, this has gotten too far. Right. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to see how far it can go. And he wanted to see what the, uh, audience reaction was. He said he was honestly surprised. He thought there could be a lot of people yelling at him. What are you nuts? Et cetera. Everybody was like, Oh, Jerry, wait, that's a good point. Well, then he's definitely conservative because that's who's listening. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like you said, honestly. There are no liberals outside of Air America and a couple of other shows that we right. know who they are. The rest of yeah. everyone else on radio is conservative. No, unless he maybe has a show about uh, you know on the weekend money or something. Yeah, <laughs> you know, right? No, no, and he does have a show on the weekends. Like sometimes they'll throw in like a token yeah, random yeah. liberal and a sea of oh, but the state, but the the station is clearly conservative because all stations outside of Air it's America, a big are giant, are powerful station in Washington D.C. has been for years. And so the first caller says, "Oh, you're off your rock." So we're off to a good start. Okay, that's good. That's the reaction they should have. Uh, the second congratulated him, saying. Not only uh, do you tattoo them in the middle of their forehead, but you should ship them out of this country. They're here to kill us. So he thought the tattoo on their arms was not enough, the second caller. He thought we should tattoo them on their foreheads. Um, and then uh, another caller calls in and says, what good is identifying them? You have to set up encampments like we did during World War II with the Japanese and the Germans. Which, by the way, we didn't do it for the Germans. You see, remember, the Germans were white. We just did it for the Japanese. Uh, so then... Caller after caller after caller. There, he said there, there was a minority of callers saying it's a bad idea. The overwhelming majority of the callers were like, yeah, of course. You put it on their license. You give them an armband. You tattoo them. You make sure we find out who the Muslims are. They're here to kill us. So you drive them out of the country or you put them in camps. And if they're not in camps, then at least let's figure out who they are because they're dangerous. For those of you who still don't get it, of course, the Germans put tattoos on people and they made them wear armbands. Well, not with, of course, the Crescent, but the Jewish Star and uh, Star David and with pink for gay and, and w- whatever other insignias they had for gypsies and, and Poles, et cetera, et cetera. And it, Jerry Klein said he was flabbergasted. He finally told his audience, I was, you know, doing this to see what your reaction was, and I'm sickened by your reaction. Uh, and he said, now I see how the Germans did it, because it's not it's not un- I-, I see it. You, there you are. You're willing to do it. And it's not a small minority. It seems perfectly fitting that with Trump and the Republicans marching into office with the promise of repealing Obamacare high on their agenda, that we look back to 10 years ago when President Bush was actually proposing 
healthcare reform. I bet you don't even remember that he proposed it, but in his uh, State of the Union address in 2007, he proposed some healthcare reform. If you know anything about Republicans, it will not surprise you to learn that his proposal is tax cuts. And so that's the first clip we're going to hear, Al Franken. I always love to try to pull a clip from the Al Franken show because he's in the Senate now, and I I loved his show back when he did it. Uh, So they are talking about Bush's healthcare policy proposal, uh, the one right after that. Uh, Just a few months later, Michael Moore released his movie Sicko, and so I have a clip from him promoting that movie and talking about the origin of HMOs. And then just a few more months after that, you'll hear a clip about Democrats trying to pass health care for children and President Bush gleefully vetoing it. Uh, he talked about health care uh, last night. And leading up to the member, Andy, they said that we that the president really had to explain this thing. Yeah, I mean, it's a complicated bit of policy, and he's using it to try to have this be a new domestic initiative that takes attention away from all the failed ones and all the failed foreign initiatives he's been engaged in. And the challenge, all the pundits said, was he's going to have to find a way to explain this sort of arcane health policy change clearly enough that people go, okay, I understand this is something I want. So he and all his high-priced speechwriters sat in a room in the State of the Union. You work on for weeks, months even. They hammered out the language. They talked with all the policy advisors, and and this is what they came up with. Clear. This is the clear and concise discussion with the American people about what he wants to do. Okay, let's let's play this and 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 see how how you understand this. First, I propose a standard tax deduction for health insurance that will be like the standard tax deduction for dependents. Families with health insurance will pay no income on payroll tax or payroll taxes on $15,000 of their income. Single Americans with health insurance will pay no income or payroll taxes on $7,500 of their income. With this reform, more than 100 million men, women, and children who are now covered by employer-provided insurance will benefit from lower tax bills. At the same time, this reform will level the playing field for those who do not get health insurance through their job. For Americans who now purchase health insurance on their own, This proposal would mean a substantial tax savings, $4,500 for a family of four making $60,000 a year. And for the millions of other Americans who have no health insurance at all, this deduction would help put a basic private health insurance plan within their reach. Changing the tax code is a vital and necessary step to making health care affordable for more Americans. Okay, confused applause. I'm not sure what this plan is. <laughs> I, I don't know. I think that it's a tax hike in part, right? On well, no, Americans. he's talking about tax cuts, but then he doesn't talk about how this is going to be paid for, which is by tax hikes on people with quote gold gold plated. Uh, Health care plans that they get from their employers. That'd be like that, me. Yeah, but he didn't mention that. So also, if if you're not pay, paying your, uh, uh, I guess it's good to take it out of payroll taxes because a lot of this was giving a tax deduction to people who don't pay income taxes. So maybe this is good. I don't know. We gotta get out of this place. Get this out of here. 
Today's episode is sponsored by Blue Apron, who delivers fresh, perfectly portioned ingredients for great meals right to your door for less than the cost of eating out. When you create your account, you just tell them your food preferences, so if you're a vegetarian or pescatarian, they've got you covered. Their seafood is sourced sustainably under standards developed in partnership with the Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch, and their suppliers use regenerative farming practices for their produce. Plus, just the practice of shipping the exact amount of each ingredient required for a recipe means they're helping reduce food waste. This month, a couple of meals they have coming up include spaghetti squash and marinara with mushroom and garlic knots, and spicy shrimp and Korean rice cakes with cabbage and furikake. So check out this week's menu and get your first three meals for free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com best. You're going to love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so don't wait. That's blueapron.com best. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. He found this uh, Watergate tape. It has nothing to do with Watergate. It's one of the Nixon tapes at the archives, National Archives, where Nixon and Ehrlichman are discussing whether or not to support this HMO concept. And Ehrlichman says to, to Nixon, uh, you're going to love this because um, yeah, this is private enterprise. This isn't like some freebie thing. And Nixon goes, oh, I like that. Well, tell me about it. And then Ehrlichman says... Uh, well, this is how they. This is how it's going to work. These HMOs, they're going to make more money by providing less care. The less care they give them, the patients, the more money the company makes. And Nixon goes, "Ooh, <laughs> not bad." <laughs> and it's all there on tape. And they're know? talking about Kaiser Permanente. And, he, and Nixon says yes. he met Kaiser. Yes, he ex- yes. brought Edgar him in Kaiser, to explain yes. it. Brought him in to explain the whole thing and the whole how the scheme would work, and and Ehrlichman and Nixon are just kind of rubbing their hands, going, "Oh, this is uh, this is great," and uh, and the very next day, Nixon announces his new health care program, which is of course going to include these HMOs that Kaiser Permanente wanted to uh, have included. God in His infinite wisdom put Richard Nixon on this earth. To bring to us his heritage, one of priceless worth. His heritage is from heaven, and the magic from above. The rapture of music and melody, of culture and of love. On this vote, the yeas are 273, the nays are 156. House Democrats fell 13 votes short of the two-thirds majority they needed to override President Bush's veto of a bill that would expand a popular insurance program to cover 10 million children. George Bush just vetoed Abby and Josh. They failed despite a massive ad campaign aimed at winning over more Republicans. President is isolated in this. Don't join him in his isolation. Come forward on behalf of the children. But Republicans stuck with the president, spokeswoman Dana Perino saying at the White House, we won this round. I think it says a lot about how many Republicans stayed with the president. After a million dollars, they spent a million dollars to try to get Republicans to pull off of this bill. MoveOn.org and the unions and the like, and it didn't work. President Bush led Republicans in arguing the $35 billion expansion was too expensive and put the nation on the wrong track. It's about S-CHIP, stands for Socialized Clinton-Style Hillary Care for Illegals and Their Parents. 
Democrats repeatedly argued Republicans have their priorities all wrong. You don't have money to fund the war or children, but you're going to spend it to blow up innocent people if we could get enough kids to grow old enough for you to send to Iraq to get their heads blown off for the president's amusement. Though Democrats never expected to override the veto, they still believe they came away winners. No, it's not a loss for Democrats at all, at least politically. Uh, Politically, they see it as a big advantage for them going into next year's election. The president says he is willing to compromise, and so are Democrats, though they're holding firm to making sure 10 million children are covered by the program. They say they're willing to make changes to address Republican concerns, like making sure that children of illegal immigrants are not covered. The money for the current program is set to run out in about a month. Terry Bodelander, The Associated Press. Again, I think it's fitting now that we are in the midst of the fight for 15 minimum wage battle to look back to just 10 years ago to see what they were fighting for back then. I'm not going to spoil it for you. If you don't know what the minimum wage was 10 years ago, you may be surprised. But first, we're going to hear a little montage about the minimum wage, and then we're going to hear from Ted Kennedy, known as the Lion of the Senate, just to remember what it was like to have him uh, fighting on our side. Uh, He has since passed away. No one who works for a living in our nation should have to live in poverty. Yet in America today, a minimum wage worker who works 40 hours a week, 52 weeks a year, earns $10,700 a year. For a family of three, that's almost $6,000 below the poverty line. Yet across the country today, there are millions of mothers and fathers for whom that's the reality. The CEOs from your wealthiest corporations in this country earn more in four hours than a minimum wage worker earns in an entire year. And yet the Republican majority found the time to make life easier for the most well-off 1% of people in this country, but no time at all to help those who need it most. What kind of values does that represent? Top of back, everyone, paying your bills with 1997 wages is something almost 2 million people are struggling with in America, making a minimum wage that hasn't been increased in almost 10 years. $5.15 an hour. It's the minimum wage in America, a rate so low, even fast food joints offer more. Minimum wage! Today's episode is sponsored by ZipRecruiter. If you're looking to hire a new employee, then you've got a big job ahead of you. If you want to find the perfect hire, you should post your job to all of the top sites. It's more than a hundred of them. But now with ZipRecruiter, you can post your job opening to all of those sites, plus social media networks like Facebook and Twitter, with a single click. And ZipRecruiter already has 9 million resumes you can search through in their database, so they're really a search engine for finding and posting jobs. You can find candidates in any city or 
your industry nationwide. Just post once and watch your qualified candidates roll into ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface. And since many hands make light work, you can easily add multiple people to your account to make it more efficient for your team to find the best hire. If you have any issues, ZipRecruiter's friendly and human support staff is ready to help. So find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by over 1 million businesses. And right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash free trial. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash free trial. One more time, to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash free trial. Do you have such disdain for hardworking Americans that you want to pile all your amendments on this? Why don't you just hold your amendments till other pieces of legislation? Why this volume of amendments on just the issue to try and raise the minimum wage? What is it about it that drives you Republicans crazy? What is it? Something. Something. Are you going to require us to go in to have a cloture vote next week? I can see it already. Amendments have already been filed that are going to be related in case we do get cloture to delay this even further. What is the price that the workers have to pay to get an increase? Does the name Scooter Libby mean anything to you? Maybe Ambassador Joe Wilson? Maybe so, maybe not. At least you should be aware that we were lied into the Iraq War, but you're not quite sure how, maybe. Well, it's never too late for a refresher course. These next two clips are about Scooter Libby, the lies that were told to get us into the war, and what happened to him. The problem is you really shouldn't be going to war, a preemptive war, based on a suspicion or a belief. I mean, you should have some proof. I mean, there was no proof. That's the point. This is clearly totally unsatisfactory that the, the world's biggest governments can go ahead on the basis of such information. I saw a former Jordanian prime minister for dinner and I said, what if we don't find the weapons of mass destruction? And he said to me, you'd better invent them. With Hans Blix out of the way, all that remained was to prove that Saddam Hussein had procured enriched uranium as part of a nuclear weapons program. But such accusations had to come from an irreproachable source. The White House put forward the name of Joe Wilson, a friend of the president's family. Wilson was the last American diplomat to have met Saddam Hussein in Baghdad. His courage during the Gulf War had led him to be decorated by the first President Bush. Dick Cheney asked the CIA to contact Wilson for a particularly delicate mission. Joe Wilson was a very able ambassador. Gave money to Bush one. Uh, and Wilson was called by the CIA to go to a country whose people he knew and check out a rumor that the country of Niger had sold uh, yellow cake, which is a material you'd use in part of nuclear weapons production, to Iraq. The neocons around the president, around President Bush, had been citing this, including Cheney, had been citing this as a reason to invade Iraq. I told them when the decision was made that I would go, but only as a representative of the government. In other words, as someone who asks questions on behalf of the government, not for the CIA. I'm not a spy. So he went, 
and he talked to several government officials and asked them how they, uh, what type of businesses, business they do with Iranian, what are the safeguards, what are the protections, and came back and said that it was, in his view, unlikely that such a deal could happen. I made my report that said no, there was no truth in it, there was nothing to the story. To Wilson's great shock, even though we had learned that, the speech that the president gave in the State of the Union, which is the most important speech an American president can give, cited this thing, saying it was true. The British government has learned that Saddam Hussein recently sought significant quantities of uranium from Africa. We knew from the reports that were made, including my own, that this information was false. Bush is either a liar or he believes it and doesn't know it's not true. Either is bad. Either disqualifies Bush as president. You can't say it was the British. It seems perfectly clear that it was someone within the White House who put something in his speech that couldn't be justified. Well, Wilson was just appalled by it because he knew it wasn't true. The people at the CIA also knew it wasn't true. They had told the White House before that this was wrong. This started a gigantic fight with CIA people leaking all over the place against the White House. It's an issue on which they based the decision to go to war. Not only to war, but to wage a war that led to the invasion, the conquest, and now the occupation of a sovereign nation. That's when Joe Wilson got very upset. And so he decided to write an op-ed piece for the New York Times describing this experience he had. Well, the political people in the White House were angry. And the way they dealt with this is they decided to leak the story to five different organizations, all friendly news people that had dealt with them in the past. The one organization that took it was, uh, was uh, Robert Novak, the conservative columnist. He calls one of his contacts at the White House. The White House is trying to diminish Joe Wilson and says, oh, and by the way, you know, his wife is with the CIA and she's the one who had the idea of sending him to Niger. And he ran the story mentioning his, Joe Wilson's wife's name, which is a federal crime. Joe Wilson's wife was a covert operative for the operations directorate of the CIA. And when you mention one of those names, mention a spy's name, you endanger her. Look at what they did. They compromised everything she had done in the previous 20 years. Because it was not only the person, but her whole career that was called into question. All her relations with foreigners. Everything that she'd been able to achieve for her country since joining the CIA. That's one of the worst things I've ever heard of anyone doing in the, the White House. The story was ruining her career, but also undermining her, her work, every operation she was ever involved with, every country she ever visited, would now become the target of opposing forces in those country. So a lot of people's lives were put in danger when he did that. The idea of using a member of an opponent's family to try to discredit him or her, hoping to discredit the opponent at the same time, is totally idiotic. Ethically, it's intolerable. The leak is now being investigated in this country, but it's believed to have come from somebody at the White House, either in the vice president's office or the president's office. As promised, in his first live interview since the verdict, I'm joined now by the former acting U.S. ambassador to Iraq, Joseph Wilson. Thank you again for your time tonight, sir. Nice to be with you, Keith. It has been five years this month since your trip to Niger. Is there any sense of personal vindication tonight after all you've been through after today's conviction of Scooter Libby? 
Well, I think Valerie and I will both sleep easier tonight, knowing that at least one part of this is behind us. Um, I take no satisfaction in this. Uh, I think that the idea of a senior White House official being convicted of obstruction of justice and perjury is, uh, is something that ought to sadden everybody who believes in, in public service. Um, the responsibility of a public servant to uphold and defend the Constitution is besmirched when they're convicted of crimes like this. On the other hand, of course, I think it reconfirms that this is, in fact, a nation of laws and that no man is above the law. And I think we could take some satisfaction that the Constitution has been defended by the prosecution, by the system of justice, and by the jury of peers that, uh, that uh, decided uh, Mr. Libby's uh, guilt today. Your wife clearly has believed in public service all this time. Share with me what you can of uh, Valerie's reaction today. Well, I think she she wept uh, when when she heard the news. Uh, I was actually in a restaurant in Washington D.C. and she called me up and she just said, uh, four out of five guilty," and uh, she was very relieved. I think uh, she will sleep well tonight, um, uh, knowing again that this part of, of this ordeal is behind us. Um, but I would just say that whatever whatever the last four or five years have been like for us, uh, it's been mere inconvenience compared to what this administration has uh, has done. Uh, uh, to our service people and their families in the prosecution of a war uh, that was justified on misinformation and lies and was really undertaken not for the national security of the United States, but to prove an academic theory, which wasn't a very good academic theory at that. So Scooter Libby was convicted, but of course, he's a powerful person who was instrumental in the lies that led to the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people. So don't worry, he didn't spend any time in jail. Uh, he worked directly for Cheney, and Ch he was referred to as Cheney's Cheney. And so, of course, Cheney wanted George Bush to pardon Scooter Libby. But in these last couple of years of the Bush administration, George Bush started pulling away from Cheney a little bit. He, he, he wasn't quite the full-blown puppet he had been all throughout. So he, he refused to pardon Scooter Libby, but he did commute his sentence. So it's a little bit of a distinction without a difference, but take it for what it's worth. Next up is Attorney Gate and Alberto Gonzalez, the Attorney's General. Now, and maybe you've forgotten about Attorney Gate. I certainly had. Maybe you've never heard of it. Again, always good for a refresher. Uh, at this point in the Bush administration, the scandals were coming fast and furious. So the basics are that Alberto Gonzalez, as the Attorney's General, personal friend of George Bush, he used to be an attorney for Enron, not surprisingly. Uh, he and those in the Bush administration were working to fire federal attorneys for partisan political reasons. This became a scandal. Of course, there were calls for Gonzalez to resign. Here's what first Colbert and then the Young Turks had to say about it at the time. Liberal assault on our president continues, folks. Yesterday, the Democrats pulled out their most underhanded weapon yet, Republicans. An exclusive interview with Maverick Republican Chuck Hagel. Maverick? Hagel stole that mantle from John McCain. Now McCain's going to have to steal a mantle from somebody else. Maybe seems kind of old mantle from Bob Dole? <laughs> I don't know. Senator Hagel wasted no time in viciously mavericking the president. 
No president can dictate to this country. We have three equal branches of government. No president is bigger than the other two. Article one of the Constitution is not the presidency, it's the Congress. This, this is not a monarchy. Of course it's not a monarchy. What an outrageous thing to say. The president should, should confiscate Hegel's lands and revoke his peerage. <laughs> Thank you, though. <laughs> of course, this is really about Attorney General Alberto Gonzalez and the fired U.S. attorneys, even though Gonzalez already explained he was not involved in the affair. Like every CEO, I am ultimately accountable and responsible for what happens within the department. But that is, in essence, what I knew about the process. Was not involved in, in seeing any memos, was not involved in any discussions about what was going on. See, Gonzalez is as innocent as the CEO of a major corporation, like Enron, the company he used to represent. But the accusations keep flying because a few documents released on Friday imply that Attorney General Gonzalez was involved in the decisions just because he signed off on the plan. And now the Democratic Congress wants more answers. Well, too bad, Dems. Gonzalez has made his statement. If you want any more information, you're going to have to torture it out of him. <laughs> oh, right. You guys don't believe in torture. Don't want to get your hands dirty. You know who might be willing to do it for you? Alberto Gonzalez. <laughs> oh, no. The one guy who could have helped you. Was not involved in, in seeing any memos, was not involved in any discussions about what was going on. That's basically what I knew as the Attorney General. Uh, I, never saw the, I never saw documents. We never had a discussion about where things stood. Other, I, what I knew was that, was that there was an ongoing effort that was led by, by Mr. Sampson, uh, vetted throughout the, through the Department of Justice. I'm not going to resign. I'm going to stay focused on protecting our kids. Ladies and gentlemen, we got him. Down goes Alberto Gonzalez. Down goes Alberto Gonzalez. <laughs> hey, you know what? I want to thank the Bush administration for continuing to announce these on early Monday morning, right when our show is on. Hey, doing us a big favor. I really appreciate it. Man, this is some big news. Gonzalez has gone down, and uh, New York Times is reporting it this morning. He will have a press conference later this morning. Gonzalez will to tell us about it. Apparently on Friday he called the president and told him, and the president uh, said, well, come on down to the ranch. I want to take you out to the lake. <laughs> hey, one of his nicknames for Gonzalez is Fredo. So uh, they had a talk, and the president, according to advisors, begrudgingly accepted Alberto Gonzalez's resignation, saying he's been so poorly mistreated by the Democrats. And earlier in a, in a press conference this month, Bush had said, Gonzalez has done nothing wrong. After all, he sent thousands of documents to the Congress. Is that not enough? Is it not enough? Well, now Gonzalez leaves the White House. Helicopters on rooftops, man. <laughs> They're all leaving. Carl Rove, Alberta Gonzalez, Dan Bartlett. Man, people are running out of there like it's Saigon. Like 
Next, we move on to the state of the climate movement. Now, what do you think of when you think of the climate movement these days? You probably think of 350.org. You probably think of people chaining themselves to the fence of the White House and being arrested. Maybe you think of hundreds of thousands of people marching through New York or large distributed actions all around the world of people marching through cities all around. Ten years ago, that is not what was going on, but 2007 was an incredibly interesting year in the climate movement, a turning point in the movement, but one that you can't really see until you look backwards, and then you can see it. And it was a very interesting year for me and my relationship to the climate movement as well. 2007 was the year that I moved away from my home in California moved to the Washington, D.C. region, and through a bizarre series of uh, coincidences, I ended up renting a room from Mike Tidwell, the uh, executive director of the Chesapeake Climate Action Network, the organization that I would go on to work for a little bit later. And very soon after I arrived, Mike told me about an event that his organization was putting on and hosting. It was happening in this historic church in DuPont Circle. They were going to have speakers and a, you know, a paying audience. It was a big fundraiser for them. And this is the very first time I ever heard of or saw or heard speak Bill McKibben. And this is before he founded 350.org. This is before we knew that the number 350 was an important number in the climate movement. And so these next couple of clips are Bill describing the incredibly humble beginnings of what became 350.org and the global climate movement. This is recorded from that Chesapeake Climate Action Network event in DuPont Circle that I attended. And I, I went to this event, I heard these people speak, and I thought, holy shit, these people know what they're doing, and I need to get involved somehow. almost strange because for 10 or 15 years we've had the kind of superstructure of a movement. We've had first scientists and then engineers and economists and policy people and all the sort of things you'd need to kind of have a movement. The only part we've been missing is the movement part. People actually, they're doing what has to be done. What has to be done to put on the pressure to make something happen. I remember sitting and interviewing a few years ago for a couple of days John McCain, who had introduced what at the time was a fairly important piece of legislation on climate. Not anywhere near good enough, not at all what we need now, but still at least. I said to him, why does this have so, little, so much trouble getting even you know, 20 or 30 senators behind it? And he said, you know, for most senators, this is a no-brainer. They hear every day from the fossil fuel lobby, and they don't hear anything from people at home. Um, and that stuck in my mind. ExxonMobil made $40 billion last year. More profit than any company any, in the history of profit sort of companies, you know. Um, um, we could probably pool all our spare cash in this room tonight and still come up slightly short of $40 billion. <laughs> um, that's not how we're going to win, okay? But we are going to win, or at least we're going to give it one heck of a fight.
in mid-January um, with six very newly minted college grads, Middlebury graduates people in the winter as well as the uh, 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 spring. So these kids had just graduated. I'd raised enough money that we could pay them each $100 a week. And we had a little, we have a little office in Burlington about twice the size of this table. Um, and uh, in fact, it, there's, that's, there's a table just like that in it. And the six of them sit around it with their laptop computers all day, just on the computer. Uh, whenever there whenever there's, has to be a discussion, one of them will say, laptops down, and everyone <laughs> closes their computer. Um, we launched this website, stepitup07.org. And we said to people, will you organize a rally on April 14th in your community? Now, you know, we could have... We thought about maybe we should do a march on Washington, okay? But we didn't have the organizational ability to do that or the money or whatever. And we thought about all the carbon it would take to bring everybody from across the country here. And we also thought we want Congress people to know that in their districts, people care about this, that back home people care about this, that it's not a second or a third tier issue after we get, you know, do all the other things we need to do, that it's right at the front of people's minds and and we also wanted to be able to kind of show against the backdrop of the places all around this country that are going to be affected and, and, and wrecked by the onrushing change in the climate. We wanted people to be able to take their stand there. So we just set up this website and issued this invitation and started sending out emails to people. We thought maybe, maybe if we were really lucky, we'd organize a couple of hundred of these things by April 14th. As of today, we just, I think today, went past about 930 or so. They're in... They're now in all 50 states. South Dakota was the holdout, but it came through this week. Um, and this success has literally nothing to do with those of us organizing it, because as I said, we basically have no idea what we're doing. Um, um, we're struggling very hard to sort of keep it, you know, sort of do what we can. What it has to do with is the desire of people to take action on this issue. I don't know where we're going, but I know we're going far. We can change the universe by being who we are. And we're living on a living planet, circling a living star. Not coincidentally, uh, this is the live music that was played at that event where Bill McKibben spoke. The band's name is Emma's Revolution. I certainly got to know their work pretty well over the next few years, because as it turned out, they played at almost every live event we did for the next three years uh, while I was working there. But there, there's one thing I just want to drive home, if it wasn't clear already, that what Bill McKimna was describing, that Step It Up campaign and the six people sitting around a folding table with their laptops— that is the organization that became 350.org. It changed names a couple of years later after James Hansen came out with his research stating that 350 parts per million is the safe level of concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere. So 
they changed their name, understanding that this is now the most important number in the world. But a year or two before that, this is what they had. They were the Step It Up campaign calling on Congress to step it up on climate action. And that, believe it or not, is how 350.org actually got started. Few people in a tiny room on their laptops, working away, organizing across the country. I trust that you will take all of the appropriate lessons uh, from that story without me having to spell it out any further. Now, as we get to the end of the show, just a few more clips. Next up, just a quick note on the death of a religious leader. I can't believe it was already 10 years ago now that we lost Jerry Falwell. And then the last couple of clips you'll hear is a sort of a where were they then uh, on a couple of very prominent politicians, Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton. The Christian evangelical leader Jerry Falwell has died at the age of 73. He was the founder of the Moral Majority and a pioneering figure in the religious right. He led campaigns against abortion, gay rights, pornography, and bans on school prayer. During the 1960s, Falwell condemned the Reverend Martin Luther King and what he described the civil wrongs movement. In the 1980s, Falwell praised South Africa's apartheid government as a bulwark for Christian civilization and campaigned against economic sanctions. Falwell once described Nobel priest laureate Archbishop Desmond Tutu as a phony. Shortly after the September 11, 2001 attacks, Falwell appeared on Pat Robertson's 700 Club and blamed liberal groups in the United States for the attacks. Although the next U.S. presidential election is still two years away, potential candidates are starting to emerge. One person whose star is rising is the Democratic senator from Illinois, Barack Obama. Polls suggest that Obama, whose father is Kenyan and mother American, is second only to Hillary Clinton in terms of popularity among Democrat voters. The 2008 election promises to be one of the most open races in 50 years. In recent days, Barack Obama made his first visit to the crucial state of New Hampshire, where the first primary will take place. Matt Fry reports. Hey, everybody. Just coming for a cup of coffee? Very unlikely. We're at the New Grounds Coffee Shop in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and the only outsiders who turn up here want something entirely different. They want to be in the White House, and Senator Barack Obama is one of them. With his loping gait and his infectious smile, he blends easily with the adoring crowds. And we followed him on his maiden voyage to the Granite State, a dirigeur stop for any American politician who's considering a run for the White House. You guys have to let people through. Next stop, a book signing of the senator's own book, of course. The place is packed, and there's even crowd control. How often can you say that about a politician signing books? Hi, what's your name? Amy Fiddlesey. Hey, Amy, good to see you. Thank you for coming. The hefty tome is called The Audacity of Hope. It has done audaciously well. It's number two on the New York Times bestseller list. And it paints a picture of America vexed, divided, and yearning for new leadership. From the author, perhaps. Obviously, it's flattering to get a lot of attention. Uh, although I must say, uh, it's baffling, uh, particularly to my wife. Um, but I actually think that the reason that I'm getting so much attention right now has less to do with me and more to do with you. We are looking for something different. It's a year before the New Hampshire primaries. It is two years before the presidential elections. And at this very early stage in a campaign which hasn't even been officially declared, 
no one knows whether Senator Barack Obama will actually end up one day in the White House. But to attract such a large number of people at this stage is an unprecedented phenomenon. And at the very least, it'll have to give Hillary Clinton and so many other Republicans many sleepless nights. I thought he was a great, it was a great speech. I think he's a great guy, and I think he's exactly what the country needs. I think from his heart it was great, but I wanted it to be a little more rousing. There were almost 2,000 supporters at this event, and they had each paid $25 of their own money to be here. But wait a minute. Barack Obama is African-American. Obama rhymes with Osama, and his middle name happens to be Hussein, of all things. Surely he doesn't stand a hope in hell, especially with moderate Republican voters. But just listen to Frank Luntz, a prominent Republican pollster and strategist. There is nobody in American politics today that captures the public's attention like Barack Obama. There is a personality that is so mesmerizing. You walk into a room with him and he sucks the air out and he sucks the attention in. And you don't get that in politics. And it's not by anything he says or anything he does. It's, it's by who he is and what he represents. Here's a gentleman who can speak about politics in a nonpartisan tone, in a non-ideological way, and move everybody. Oh, I get so frustrated. You know what Hillary did? That stupid Lieberman-Kyle amendment saying, yeah, whoop, whoop, let's go attack Iran. Let's, what Jim Webb called uh, uh, Dick Cheney's wildest pipe dream. Hillary Clinton voted for it yesterday. I mean, you have her on one side, and then you see Bill Clinton on the other side, and people say, oh, Clinton, Clinton, it's the same thing. It's not the same thing, man. I don't know if you know this, but as she said in the debate last night, they're two different human beings. And I like the former President Clinton, a lot better. A lot better. Voting for that Kyle Lieberman amendment saying, yeah, Iran is attacking us and we need to attack back. What the hell is the matter with you? And of course, as always, Barack Obama, profiling courage, hiding in the corner. Didn't even vote. Two senators didn't vote. It was Obama and McCain. The two profiles in courage lately. Mr. Flip Flopper and Mr. Hide and Go Seek. So... Uh, now, t to be fair, fair, the Kyle Lieberman Amendment, <laughs> God, the Democrats drive me crazy. All right, I'm going to try to be as fair to them as I possibly can. It was atrocious. We read you paragraph three and paragraph four from yesterday where they say, you know, we authorize all military attacks against Iran. Which, I mean, that's it. You're saying you're giving the president authority to attack Iran. How much clearer could it be? So Reed was ready to pass. He's like, oh, yeah, okay, come on, let's bring it up. And then Webb was like, what are you, an idiot? This is authorizing war against Iran. Senator Webb from Virginia. And Reed's like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, that's, I guess, a slight problem. So they took out paragraphs three and four. Now, the rest of it's still, you know, incredibly belligerent towards Iran, totally useless. They already passed the sense of the Senate resolution 97 to nothing saying that Iran is attacking our troops. They added some more language to the Kyle Lieberman Amendment saying, oh, no, 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 we're really going to, Secretary Gates definitely says we're going to try economic and diplomatic uh, and diplomatic routes first okay you know what that means that means we're going to try them first oh look at that check check we tried them already now time for a military solution 
78 to 22. It passed. Easy. Super easy. You think Democrats are a real party? They're pushovers. You can get them to pass anything. I mean, they just got them to pass in the House and the Senate a resolution condemning themselves. Forever being associated with the people trying to support them, like MUVA. We condemn our voters and our supporters. How dare they? We And furthermore, Senator Lieberman in his infinite wisdom, the biggest hawk warmonger the Senate has ever seen, uh, wants to pass an amendment saying that Dick Cheney can attack Iran. Yeah, I'm in. I'm so tough, I'm staying. And, and Hillary Clinton voted for it. Now, you know what that sound means. The show is almost over. Uh, maybe some listener comments or some final thoughts from me. But I do have one more absolutely priceless piece of audio for you uh, pulled from the archives. And if you, everything you're about to hear is true, first of all. Uh, second of all, this comes from Chris the Carpenter, who, by pure coincidence, I happen to have mentioned recently when talking about uh, strategies on how to talk to conservatives. And uh, I, I was out on Cape Cod uh, this past summer. I saw Chris and Carrie and their kids. Uh, they're still doing well and going strong. So you're about to hear from Chris the Carpenter in his original form as host of the Lifted Lorax show from uh, 10 years ago, I guess, is when I met him. And uh, and then we're going to hear the details. And like I said, this is true. If you've ever wondered how this show got started, how did one dude making this show as a hobby manage to put together a show that is obviously so work intensive, takes so much listening and editing and preparing for each episode? Uh, how did how did one guy get started doing that? Well, the answer is from the very beginning, the very first episode I ever put out. I started asking for help because I knew this is not something that one person can do. And it actually grew into a community effort. And so we're going to hear from one of those community members describing it. Hey, Jay, this is Chris the Carpenter from the Lifted Lorax show. Uh, my wife and I uh, do a little podcast from beautiful Cape Cod, Massachusetts. And uh, well, we get a call from one of our uh, phenomenal listeners, the, uh, the third member of our show, Parker. And uh, well, he left us just a phenomenal message. So I am passing it on to you, and I'm passing it on to your listeners. So, as always, um, from myself and my wife Carrie from the Lifted Lorac Show, we, uh, we thank you very, very much for what you do. Love your show. Have a good night. And here is Parker. Hi, Chris and Carrie. I wanted to, um, I had this pretty cool thing happen. I submitted a clip to the Best of the Left podcast. It's a community-supported podcast now. What I did was uh, I listened to a show, and uh, it was uh, real-time with Bill Maher, and I heard a section I thought was really good. So I looked and I noted, I wrote down what time it started and what time it stopped. And then I posted it on this website, which is botlcommunity.com. And I put what it was about, which was, I called it Republican Talking Points Destroyed. 
and later on uh, someone else on the website went and clipped it out and then later on it appeared on the best of the left podcast on uh, November 26 so I was really excited to see that and I don't know if you all knew this but anybody can get on there and submit clips from uh, left-leaning radio shows and help out that show. That show started out with one guy uh, named uh, Jay, and he did everything. He had some kind of job where he could listen to a lot of radio shows, and he would do this, like, every day. And uh, got burned out eventually, uh, and he asked for help. So now it's the community-supported Best of the Left podcast. And I really enjoy that podcast. So there's what I got for you. Bye. Now, surely this is the end and it's time to wrap up, but no. I have one more story for you. That's very important, pivotal moment in the show in 2007 that I need to tell you about. So first of all, as I mentioned, I started asking for help from the audience before there was an audience. The very first episode I put out, I started asking for help. And then as we just heard from Parker, I did the show pretty much by myself for the first several months. Maybe got like one or two clips along the way, get, you know, donated from a listener volunteering their time to help out. But as Parker mentioned, I came to a point where I burned out. I, I just, I worked too hard. I put out too many episodes. I couldn't keep going. So I had to decide, do I quit or do I double down and really stress that I need help from the audience? So that's what I did. And so I had this idea for a, for a sort of conversation frame that I had seen some road work, just regular old someone installing a, a traffic light. And the sign that they put up, this is back in California, the sign they put up, it said, your half cent tax at work. And I thought, right, that's how taxes work. You put up a half cent as a citizen, and we collectively get to install something like a traffic light where there definitely needed to be a traffic light. I can attest to it. If you ever wanted to turn off the side road onto the main road at that intersection, good luck. We needed a traffic light. And I thought, great, I'm perfectly happy that half of one of my pennies is going to pay for that traffic light. And so that's what I said to my audience. I said, look, I need your half cent right now. If the show is going to continue, I need your half cent. If you can donate time, energy, if you can help me clip out segments, if you can help me find segments to clip out, whatever we can do, let's make it happen. I created a forum for the community, and that is how the show managed to continue on after I had decided I, I can't keep doing this on my own. And I mean, boy, if that is not a romantic origin story uh, for a show like this, I don't know what is. I love that part of the history of this show. So for a good long while, 
the show was going along, and it, as Parker said, it became the community-supported Best of Left podcast, and I started having guest producers, and I had a whole you know, little community of people who took it upon themselves to find great clips to go into the show, and they would help me edit them, uh, you know, just pull out the clips, and then I would sort of organize the clips, and sometimes I'd put the shows together myself, sometimes I'd send it off to another volunteer, and they would compile the shows and put in their own music and all of that, and then and I would just sort of be the host at the beginning and end. And so the show went on, you know, pretty well like that for another several months. But then in mid-2007, like I said, it was an important year for me. I had a big move. I had a big career change, personal changes, schedule changes, and I just didn't have the time to commit to the show anymore. And so I thought, May, I just can't do this again, even with the support of the community. I just don't have the time. I, I, I you know, the, the show deserves more than I can give. And so I thought I was going to pull away. And another person who had been just an all-star volunteer, he had helped build or not helped. He just did build the website for the show back in the, those days. And, and he was really involved in the community. And he stepped up and he said he would be the new sort of managing producer and the community would continue on helping compile the clips, and he would produce the shows with the help of volunteers. And that's what happened. I quit the show in 2007. I stopped working on it. The show continued without me, and I went off and did other things. Billy was the new managing editor, and he continued from mid-2007 through the end of the year and beyond. So... Did I ever come back and regain the reins of the show? Did I ever take it back over? And I don't know. You'll have to come back next year when we do our 2008 review episode to find out what happens. But looking back, it, it still amazes me that that idea worked, that a community could end up building a show and then sustaining it on its own after the original creator left. And to me, that is what the origin, not just of this show, but the origin of podcasting is all about. Uh, podcasts these days, I mean, talk about sitting on your porch and yelling at the kids on your lawn. That's how I feel about podcasting these days. Boy, back in the glory days of podcasting, it wasn't about selling ads and having major radio stations topping all the charts of all the major podcasts and having big podcast networks gobble up all the talent. No. Back then, it was about regular people sitting in their basements or their spare rooms, getting together with communities of people, making podcasts that meant something to people. It meant so much to them that they would volunteer their own time to help keep them going when they were in danger of fading away. And so you and I and every single person who listens to or benefits from this show owes this show's existence to those people who kept it going when it may otherwise have simply faded away out of existence. So a huge thanks to those intrepid podcasting heroes from back in the day, and as always, thanks to members and donors and volunteers who continue to support the show to this very day. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. 
Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from Best of the Left. Dot com. And it's a crying shame how we get so trained.